Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Uh, There's a book written by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Uh, If you are online at live.cvbchurch.org, the link is posted in the sermon notes that are there. By the way, if you're still figuring out all this new media and things, if you've got your phone, you can go to live.cvbchurch.org, and the notes for the sermon are actually are actually there. So, so if you're if you're a note taker, just know that those are available, and the link to that uh, to that book is actually available there as well. Uh, This book was written in 19. 85, so it's got some years to it. In 1985, he argued that television and entertainment were having detrimental effects on our civilization. Now, this isn't one of these, these books where, you know, if you played the rock and roll music backwards, you'd get satanic messages. It's not that kind of message. That's not what this book is. This is, a, this is actually a, a well-thought-out book that, that was written way ahead of its time. And in the book, he describes the competing dystopian visions of the age from Aldous Huxley and George Orwell. He says this, he says, We were keeping our eye on 1984. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by the Orwellian nightmares. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those that would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared that those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared that there would be those that would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a state of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy, which is from terms from the Brave New World. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who were ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, the book, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, 
they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. I feel like Postman's book ought to be required reading today. Of course, written in 1985, his concerns have only been amplified. Think back 36 years now to 1985. The only screen that Postman had to worry about were those bulky tubes that filled American living rooms where the remote control had two legs and a bad attitude. I was walking around a store the other day, and there was a refrigerator, a $4,000 refrigerator. Uh, I didn't buy it. And the entire refrigerator side was this gigantic touchscreen that I believe was bigger than the first television I had when I, when I first moved out. In 1985, for those who had cable, you might remember, do you have cable in 1985? 3, 9, and 12, right? 3, 9, and 12. There were, there were very limited options to those that had it. Uh, today, there's literally hundreds of channels to choose from with nothing on any of them. In 1985, there was no such thing as internet, social media, or cell phones. Perhaps in 85, if you were high on the social ladder, you may have been one of the first ones to receive a pager that someone could find you, and then you had to race, race to find a payphone. For those of you who are younger than 30, a payphone is a device that used to hang on the outside of buildings where you put a quarter in, and you could make a phone call uh, at that place. In 35 years since Postman wrote that incredibly prophetic work, things have only gotten much worse. The pandemic has set us in front of our screens even more. Now our church services happen to be on screen. Our company meetings happen on screen. And we literally choose our entertainment options not by whatever network executives determine to be the best schedule, but by whatever mood we find ourselves in. I remember as a child waking up and, and on Saturday morning to catch all the Saturday morning cartoons. Now that's irrelevant. Kids don't even understand the experience of waking up to see Saturday morning cartoons. On New Year's Eve, we were looking for a movie to watch because the ABC special that Dick Clark used to host, that everyone used to watch because it was fun and, and entertaining, and now it's nothing but, but wretched garbage. Uh, so we were looking for a movie to watch in that time. And I was scrolling through Hulu uh, to no avail. We got to the bottom, and my son looked at me. He said, Dad, you got to the end of Hulu. <laughs> so I guess I did. Uh, so... Today, we find that we're living in a soundbite world where our information and entertainment is customized by algorithms assigned to us by our digital overlords. We get our news from tweets, from news tickers, and from push notifications. Even now, the local church is forced into the foray as we have to make sure that all of our content is indeed worthy to find its way onto the screens of our digital audience. And if it isn't, don't worry. There are lots of people who are ready to tell us when it's not. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves consumed with consuming pointless content 
for the hope of a chuckle, a viral share, or at the very least, the hit of dopamine released by our brains. This is not a pretty picture that I've painted of our brave new world. Now, to be fair, we certainly recognize the, and we appreciate the modern conveniences that have been brought about by the remarkable advances in technology that have taken place over the last half century, indeed the last decade. We're doing things today that were unimaginable 10 years ago. I remember my very first ministry position 20 years ago. We had one computer in the office that had dial-up internet. It was AOL, and we had to wait in line to get on the computer to check our, to check our email and to hear that famous voice say, you've got mail. I remember that very much. However, in the event of these new technologies, we need to be wary that we don't boil our Christian faith down into the spiritual equivalent of a TikTok video. The faith, as Jude says, that was once delivered to all the saints has got to be more than a soundbite. You know, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As we work our way through the book of Proverbs, I want to consider the importance of the mind. You see, faith in Christ asks us to dig deep. And that deep dig is where we indeed find wisdom. And wisdom challenges us for more than just a surface-level Christianity. Wisdom calls us out of a Twitter culture and asks us to think more deeply about the things of God. Over the next few months, I want us to dig through one of the most practical books of the Bible as we seek to develop wisdom in our walk with Christ. Now, preaching through Proverbs is going to look a little bit different because the book of Proverbs is a very different kind of book. It's not a, it's not a book that you just start in chapter 1 and work your way through verse by verse. It can be challenging to do that. Um, and so it's not laid out the same way. So we're not gonna, you're not going to be able to just read chapter ahead and figure out where we're going to be next. Now, the first few chapters, we will do that way. But after we get through the first few chapters, we'll actually be sampling some themes from the book. So it'll take a, uh, the tone of a more topical style of preaching because that's the best way to approach the book of Proverbs. So this morning, I'd like for us to get to work and cover some of the introductory ideas and take a Take a perspective of Proverbs from a 30,000-foot stance. If you've got your Bibles, open to the book of Proverbs, the ninth chapter. As we begin this morning, Proverbs chapter 9, I'll begin in verse 4. I would invite you to stand as we read these words together from Proverbs chapter 9, beginning in verse 4. Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 
Father, I'm grateful for the wisdom of the Word of God, not just contained in the book of Proverbs, but from beginning to end. We ask that you bless our time today and our time over the next few months as we spend precious, uh, precious time in these words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Today I want to look at three or four principles as to why the book of Proverbs matters. I think that we as New Testament Christians can sometimes think that it's the New Testament that we, we need to spend time in, that we need to, there's some preachers who won't touch the Old Testament for, they want to spend all their time in the New, but I think there's wisdom in spending time in these books of wisdom in the Old Testament. And one of the biggest reasons that Proverbs matters is this, Proverbs gives us wise counsel for daily living. Proverbs gives us wise counsel for daily living. When you think about the Bible, you, you probably have some thoughts that automatically come to mind. If you're new to reading the Bible, you may look at the Bible and say, man, that's a lot of pages. Uh, there's a lot of words contained therein. Uh, but there's some other things that you may start to, you know, as you start, what do I think about the Bible? Well, I think Old and, and New Testament, you know, maybe I think law and prophets. If I open my New Testament, I think of gospels and epistles. I think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then I think of all that Paul wrote. Maybe you think about the doctrines contained in the Bible, or maybe you think about the theology that the Bible teaches. Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're, maybe you're keyed up by the covenants and understanding how all the covenants piece together. We understand that the Bible is filled with painstaking detail about many things. Uh, how big was the ark? Well, we know because we built an actual life-size ark up in Kentucky. So, I mean, we, we know the measurements. We know with great specificity those details. We know how many cubits the, the temple was. I mean, we know those sort of things. We know how, how specific sacrifices had to be prepared for people who encounter Leviticus for the first time. There's almost a sense of disgust at the level of detail with which those, uh, with which those sacrifices are prepared. However, in spite of the details, we, we tend to think of the book from a very high-altitude perspective. We think about the gospel and the, the consequences of salvation, and we understand that there are daily ramifications for us being saved through Christ, but we frequently talk in very big themes and big ideas. In literature, they call these things meta-narratives. Now, we know God is very much concerned with these grand themes, these big ideas, but we also understand that God is very much concerned with the day-to-day -day choices of how we live our lives. The book of Proverbs is designed to help fill in those blanks of what it looks like to daily dwell with Christ. For example, Proverbs 27 verse 14 says this, good word here. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as a curse. That's pretty practical. It's good wisdom, right? What is he saying here? Well, keep in mind, this is not one of the Ten Commandments. This is not an instruction that Paul wrote in one of his letters to the churches that was read aloud in the church. John did not reflect on these words in the book of Revelation. But God thought that it was a good word for us to contain in his scripture. Consider for just a moment, you could have sound doctrine. You could listen to all the best Bible teachers. Your, iPod, your, your podcast could be filled with all the best Bible teachers. You could listen to Moody Radio and hear the great voices on Moody Radio day in and day out. But 
If you go over to your neighbor's house at 4 o'clock in the morning and you knock loudly on their door and when they approach the door and they're groggy and they're wearing their bathrobe and you're smiling at them and they say, what do you want? And you say, I simply want to pray for you. You're not going to be a blessing in any way, shape, form, or fashion. You may have had the best of intentions. I want to bless my neighbor. You may have wanted to love your neighbor. I want to pray for my neighbor. But if you go to their house at 4 o'clock in the morning and offer them a loud blessing, it doesn't matter how much coffee you bring. You are not a blessing. The Bible says you are a curse. You are the exact opposite of a blessing. Don't knock on my door at 4 o'clock in the morning to, to bless me. You can come a little later, not at 4. You had good intentions, but you lacked something important. You lacked what Proverbs seeks to give us, wisdom. Proverbs helps to bring clarity to all sorts of practical daily decisions. How do you deal with your neighbors? Men, I don't want to see anybody with their chair on the corner of their roof because they read something about their wife who rides them a little too hard. How to deal with your spouse. How to spend your money. These are all things that Proverbs helps us to understand. These aren't just moralistic teachings based on behavior modification. Now, the, God is working on heart transformation through the power of his word. Because wisdom goes beyond being able to follow directions. Wisdom equips us with principles that helps us succeed in different situations that we may encounter down our pathway that the Bible may not specifically tell us how to handle. There are some things the Bible tells us. There's a lot of things the Bible doesn't tell us. And it is wisdom that gives us the principles to know how we should respond in those situations on which the Bible is unclear or silent. Secondly, uh, the reason Proverbs matters is because Proverbs helps us to differentiate between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15 says this, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. James, the apostle, differentiated these patterns of wisdom with the, the terms of wisdom from above and earthly wisdom. In James chapter 3, verse 13, he says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and he even calls it demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom that's from above, godly wisdom, is first pure. It's peaceable, gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know, we see these two patterns of wisdom at work in the competing worldviews of our days. We, we all, in our natural state, we all possess a natural wisdom that compels us towards self-preservation and pride. You notice you don't have to teach children how to preserve themselves. You don't have to teach children how to be proud of themselves. It comes pretty naturally. If a child touches a hot stove, 
children that, 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 that touch that hot stove, they don't typically leave their hand there to continue to experience the, the burn that comes from the stove. A child's nature, that wisdom of self-preservation is I touch a hot stove, I take my hand away. Children are naturally full of pride. Our natural wisdom makes losing unthinkable. Watch football fans when they're watching a game. Our, our natural wisdom is driven toward self. Again, we don't have to work hard for this. This is our, our natural state. Uh, we all possess this. It, it, is, it, is, it is part of, of who we are in our natural condition. However, wisdom from above frees us from those distortions that are created by pride. You think of some of Jesus' most countercultural statements, and we begin to understand the contrast between the two. Jesus taught strange things that go against our nature, like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Uh, if you want to see this lived out, go to Disney World at Rope Drop. Nobody goes to Disney World when the rope drops. That's when the park opens. Nobody goes to Disney World when the rope drops and stands in the back and says, Y'all go ahead. Have a good time. Enjoy the rides. I'll stay back here, and once y'all are clear, I'll, I'll come get in line behind you. We went to Disney World a few years ago, and we were in Animal Kingdom, and, and my wife, I, she, is a, she is a fanatic of Disney World. And, and I mean, she is a fanatic. Uh, the, the blessing is we don't live closer to Orlando. Uh, and so, uh, but we were at Animal Kingdom, and, and we had a plan, because if you know these Disney fanatics, they, they go to the park with a plan. Everything, they know what they're going to do, they know where they're going to go, they know what time they're going to be there. And so we got to Animal Kingdom at Rope Drop, and the whole plan was to, was to hightail it to the back of the park and get on the, the safari thing, because the animals come out in the morning. They don't come out in the heat of the day. So if you want to see animals, you go there first thing. And so we're there at the rope, and we are ready to go. And at this point in time, natural wisdom has no place, or, or godly wisdom has no place. It is every man and woman for himself. I'm going to be the first in line, and I will run over whoever gets in my way in, in that process. And to, to reconcile my Christian faith with this every man for himself idea is really difficult. But we are, we're making good time to the back of the, to the, back of the park. And, and there was a woman on one of these little, uh, little electric scooter things. And she had that thing floored and was driving as fast as she could through the crowd to get to the safari. And I'm not exaggerating. If there were children in the pathway, she yelled at them to get out of the way. And the only redeeming thing about this day is that I knew I wasn't as bad as she was. Right? She was way worse than we were. But, but you see that on display, that, that every man for himself, I'm going to get there first, I, I want to be first in line. We see that all the time. But that goes against what Jesus taught. The first shall be last? Well, he didn't mean at Disney World. He said that, that serving others was the best way to, to lead them. Well, that's not what the world teaches. That's not how the world works. He said that there was some bizarre kind of greatness in bearing one's cross. Well, cross-bearing is not a, an example of greatness. It's a sign of weakness. It's someone on their way to their execution. Jesus taught strange things like we gain life by losing it. 
Well, that doesn't fly in the face of our modern sensibilities. It doesn't fly in the corporate boardroom. But you know, that's what makes the kingdom of God superior to all others. And that's what makes pursuing the wisdom of God far more desirable than staying in the wisdom of man. And all that's given to us by the wisest person to ever walk the earth. Some would say that's Solomon, but I believe we can say Jesus was probably wiser than even Solomon. Jesus even emphasized this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in chapter 7, verse 24 of Matthew, whoever then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. You know, that sandy property may be beachfront. It may be worth its weight in gold, but it doesn't stand up when the storm comes. This divine wisdom, though, that we are looking for in Proverbs, it's more than just a self-help program. It's more than just living your best life now. In fact, Proverbs 13, 14 says it's a matter of life and death. I appreciate the clarity that Ray Ortland brings to this. He said this, he says, he says, what if we have many advantages in our life, but not wisdom? If we have love, but not wisdom, we will harm people with the best of intentions, like knocking on their door at 4 o'clock in the morning. If we have courage, but not wisdom, we will blunder boldly. If we have truth, but not wisdom, we will make the gospel ugly to other people. If we have technology, but not wisdom, we will use the best communications ever invented to broadcast stupidity. If we have revival, but not wisdom, we'll use the power of God to throw the church into reverse gear. Proverbs helps us to see the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Thirdly, the book of Proverbs helps us to dig deep in a very painfully shallow culture. You know, you think about it, most of the verses in Proverbs will fit into a tweet. But that doesn't diminish their significance. We, we need to understand that the number one means that our culture makers today use to convey information is a platform where they can summarize their thoughts in 280 characters. You think about that. We're living in a season where one author has described us as fidgety and distracted. I think that's true. Back before Christmas, one of Matthew's assignments was to do a report on a figure from American history. He chose Paul Revere, and the assignment involved him getting information. It was a kind of an introductory research assignment. And he had to get information from an autobiography and an encyclopedia. You see where this is going. So we went to the library to retrieve the information needed. And guess what happened when we got there? We asked the librarian, where are the encyclopedias? And the librarians looked at each other and said, in your phone? We don't have any encyclopedias. And the problem with the internet encyclopedia is that you can edit it at will. In spite of this, 
we now have access to more information than any generation before us could possibly imagine. People will sit in gatherings like this, and they will fact-check the speaker or preacher in real time. I can tell when people are. I'll say something interesting, and, and phones start to go out, and they start to look down, and they're either, they're either texting somebody about it, or they're looking on Google to make sure that what I said was accurate. Now, that certainly helps hold people accountable in this position, that the information we convey is true, but doing so only further fragments the information we receive. Because what happens when someone begins to fact-check a statement? They miss the next statement. And when they pull their phone out and they begin to look at Google to see what Google says, then they chase rabbit trails to see all the different things. And, and suddenly, 10 minutes have passed, and they've been looking at Google for 10 minutes, and then I'm concluding the sermon and having an invitation. Our, 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 our minds are further fragmented. Do you all remember the old Windows computers? When the machine started running slow, you had to go in there and you had to do something. What did you have to do? Defragment the drive. I don't know exactly how it works, but from my understanding, the way the computer stored information is that it would spread information out over the entire disk, and it made it harder and harder for the computer to, to access the information that it needed. And so in defragmenting, you, you, you went there, and it took forever to sit there and defragment that computer, but it helped to, to bring everything back together so the computer could find the information quicker. We need to defragment our mental drives. And the book of Proverbs helps to accomplish that. In a 2008 article, it's amazing, some of this stuff is, it seems ancient now. In a 2008 article for The Atlantic, it's titled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? Nicholas Carr wrote this, he says, as the media theorist, media theorist Marshall McLuhan pointed out in the 1960s, media are not just passive channels of information. They supply the stuff of thought, but they also shape the process of thought. And what the internet seems to be doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. My mind now expects me to take in information the way the internet distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. He says, I was once a scuba diver in the sea of words, and now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. You know, the difference between our Proverbs and tweets is very simple. Proverbs is rooted in something. Our tweets and Twitter activities are not. Our problem is that our fallen nature tends to take the path of least resistance. Notice back in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 4, it begins with, whoever is simple. Some translations use ignorant, some use the word naive. What that's actually referring to is us as we begin this journey of finding divine wisdom. Now, I'm like you, I'm not particularly fond of being called simple, ignorant, or naive. If someone called me those things to my face, my feelings might be hurt. But the Bible has never been particularly concerned about offending our sense of self-worth. In fact, I believe the Bible exists in part to demolish our sense of self-worth so that we come to the one who can, who can ascribe to us worth through the gospel of Jesus. But notice what happens there in chapter 9. If you look at the whole chapter, back in verse 1, wisdom is personified as a, as a lady. And wisdom builds her house, and she invites the simple to come in. In verse 13, it changes. 
And it's no longer wisdom who has built the house. In verse 13, there's another house that's built, and it is folly who has built her house. And she also, in verse 16, invites the simple to turn in. One path leads to life. The other path leads to destruction. And though it goes without saying, I think we can agree the world in which we live is pretty set on visiting one particular home. But the benefit of visiting wisdom's home is far greater. Chapter 3, verse 13 says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. And in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life, and those who lay hold of her, those who hold her fast, are called blessed. Lastly, Proverbs requires that we choose a pathway. It's like most things in life, there's a choice that people have to make. And throughout the book of Proverbs, we're constantly encountering this contrast between wisdom and folly. And at first, we're all simple. We're all committed. We're all ignorant. We're all naive. But notice what chapter 6, verse 10 says. Where does wisdom begin? Wisdom begins in the fear of the Lord. That's where true divine wisdom starts, which means we're not simple for long. We're not naive for long. We're not ignorant for long. If we follow the pathway set before us on this journey towards divine wisdom, then the very beginning of that pathway is the fear of God, and we are no longer simple because we have found the beginning of wisdom. However, if we choose to go down the pathway paved by folly, we don't stay simple on that journey either. As a matter of fact, the opposite of pursuing divine wisdom is what Proverbs so frequently calls a scoffer. Who's a scoffer? According to Proverbs 14.6, a scoffer is one who seeks wisdom in vain. A scoffer is someone who pursues folly, and in the pursuit of folly, their heart becomes so hard that they are no longer interested in pursuing the wisdom of God. So if you choose wisdom, Proverbs 15.24 says that's a pathway that leads upward from the grave. So as we begin this work, my prayer for each of us is that we'll find the pathway of wisdom so compelling that we can't imagine following any other road. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.